0: It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 119, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Father and son team Jeff and Zach Hawkins raise two acres of vegetables, 20 acres of grain, and a variety of livestock on 60 additional acres of pasture at the J.L. Hawkins family farm outside of North Manchester, Indiana. About half of their sales go through a CSA, with the remainder going through farmers markets and local restaurants, as well as an on-farm pizza night. Jeff shares the story of how the farm was started by his grandparents in the mid-1950s and how he came back and then changed the farm from a hobby farm to farming in earnest in 2003. We also dig into Zach's return to the farm in 2013 and the accompanying expansion in markets and management that was made to accommodate an additional person on the farm. Jeff and Zach also share how they've made the relationships on this small family farm work, including the ways that their respective spouses are and are not involved in the operation. Zach shares some of the details about how they've integrated the vegetable and livestock operations, including the use of pasture patches to grow some of the vegetable crops. Zach and Jeff share how they plan their way through the diversity of operations and the decision-making processes they use to do it. We also discuss some of the challenges they've faced, including how they overcame regulatory and legislative hurdles to processing their chickens on farm, and how they approach food safety with livestock and vegetables on the same operation. Just a note here, this episode was recorded in late March, so keep that in mind when we're discussing fieldwork and such. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. And by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, and lightweight for less compaction and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSAmerica.com. And by Farmers Web software for your farm. Farmers Web makes it easier to work with your buyers, saving time, reducing errors, and increasing your capacity to work with more buyers overall. FarmersWeb.com. Zach and Jeff Hawkins, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast.
1: Hey, thanks for having us, Chris. We're glad to be here. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today. I'd like to start off with just having you kind of give us the lay of the land there at JL Hawkins family farm. Where are you guys located and how many acres are you farming and what are you growing and how are you selling it?
1: Yeah. um, So our farm is 99 acres. We're just outside of North Manchester, Indiana, and that's in um, Northern Wabash County. The nearest um, city would be Fort Wayne. That's about 30 miles uh, due east of here. so on our farm, uh, we've got uh, the majority of ground in pasture. Actually, it's um, probably somewhere between 60 and 65 acres in pasture, uh, and we're using that um, to raise livestock. We've got um, about 10 acres in feed corn, um, which is which goes into the animal feed. We've got another 10 acres or so in um, small grains, which is acting as a nurse crop for pasture. Uh, there's a little five-acre wood lot, and then uh, we have a garden space, uh, which kind of fluctuates, but there's generally around two acres um, in vegetable production every season. Um, and we can talk about how that breaks breaks down if you'd like. And uh, so we're raising um, kind of like a lot of small batches of of a variety of things. So we're doing plenty of different garden vegetables and herbs. Uh, we're raising beef and pork. We've got broiler chickens, we've got layers for eggs, we do Thanksgiving turkeys, um, and then these grains as
0: well. That's quite a diversity of products. How are you selling all of that? Um we
1: uh well we have a number of, of market streams. Uh the one that we focus on is CSA. I don't know, Dad, maybe that's about like half of our, our revenue right now. That's um packaged in a couple different ways. We do a vegetable only CSA, um, but then we also have this farm share where we're trying to reflect the diversity of what we're growing um, in our you know in our marketing approach. So that will include the vegetables and then also chickens, beef, pork, eggs, they get a Thanksgiving turkey. Um, and then in, in the future they may be actually getting some of the small grains we're producing
0: too. Interesting. And then where else are you selling your product? We do One Farmer's Market,
1: um, which is kind of a recent addition. We're also using that as our CSA pickup. And um, we sell to a number of local restaurants as well. That's actually been uh, picking up kind of as the the farm to table way of cooking um, comes to our part of the country.
0: And when you say local restaurants, are you looking in the town of North Manchester there, or are you guys taking that over to Fort Wayne?
1: i both. We've got um, one uh, cafe here in town that uses a large number of uh, local products, both from our farm and other farms. But then the majority of it's going to Fort Wayne. And then another uh, more populous community is uh, Warsaw, Winona Lake, Indiana area. So we're, we're heading there every week as well.
0: That's quite a distribution run. <laughs> yeah, we, we do... Uh, Spend some time traveling during the course
1: of the week, but uh, it's it, we're in a pretty rural area, and so that's, that's been necessary for us. But we do try to, to package. Uh, you know, we're going there for a CSA pickup, but also doing restaurant deliveries. So each trip is accomplishing you know more than one objective. Yeah, we we um, also it's kind of a holdover from earlier times, but um, we have some customers that continue to uh, buy up quarter of a beef or a half of a hog. We have a little on-farm store where we've got um, ground beef and eggs and and so forth. Um, Those are are not as significant as they once were as we move more toward the CSA and wholesale restaurant model, but they still are part of our our revenue stream and and part of uh, people being involved here on our farm as well.
0: Now, how long has your farm been where it is? Yeah, my grandfather and
1: grandmother, Leo and Valmahawkins purchased this farm in nineteen fifty seven um when they were in their fifties so they they actually rented farm ground for most of their lives uh saved their money, bought this place. We are uh so very blessed by that because they were pretty fussy and so it's fine sandy loam soil um well situated well drained and so in the 50s they were here i was born in 1954 the later part of the year so so not long after i was born they purchased this and i remember um visiting here. My dad didn't grow up here since he was long out of the house, but I remember visiting here very, very frequently. And so it, it's kind of been in the family and in my life um, for all of my life. Uh, we uh, moved to the farm in 1988 uh, after being in um, Minnesota and Wisconsin and Michigan and uh, started to um, really, just piddle at it a little bit uh um more hobby farming than anything else. we raised some chickens, we had a couple of calves for beef and, and a large garden and that sort of thing um and over time, that kind of kind of we were able to make a, uh every mistake probably at least a lot of them in a small way as we as we learned some new ways of of doing some things um here and then continued to move forward with it uh, until about two thousand three. And in 2003, then uh, really in earnest is when we cast our lot with the farm and, and started the CSA and decided that it would be not really hobby, but uh, more integral to, uh, to our lives and livelihood.
0: What made you decide to make that change? <laughs> well,
1: it's an unusual story. Uh, the reason we came to town was actually in 1987 is because I was called to serve as uh, um, a pastor in town. I'm a, I'm a Lutheran pastor. And, uh. Um, that first year we kind of pretended the farm wasn't here because we wanted to know we were called to that ministry and so forth, but had some housing issues and, and my dad owned the farm at the time and was renting the farmhouse. And I said to my wife, let's, let's rent from my dad, let's move to the farm. And she said, why would we do that? She was a city girl and didn't know who the kids would play with since there weren't next door neighbors and that sort of thing. But we moved here, fell in love with it. And uh, and it was really um, good for me because uh, it was a wonderful balance to the to the um, hectic nature of parish life as a, as a parish pastor. It was hectic in its own way, but in, in kind of a, uh, a a different way. So that's what brought us here. And I was probably like maybe six or seven years old when we moved out to the farm. So uh, and then you know dad was still going into town every day to work. And we were kind of raising a a few animals here and there. But I don't think either I or my dad would describe our upbringing as like a real farm upbringing. And I certainly didn't think that I was going to be farming as I was growing up here. We both kind of had our yeah. own our own return to the farm. That's a really good point. Nor did I. I was I was born in Detroit, Michigan, actually, and, and and but we had an acre of ground, and my mother raised rabbits. We had a large garden. That this this farm ethos or culture has always kind of been, you know, have your hands in the soil. But it wasn't really an active like get up and milk cows every day sort of an upbringing for me nor for Zach. So we yeah we were we were away from it, uh, um, and and returned. And I think you know that return. Gives you a little different sense too about where it fits in your life and and uh, uh, its its vitality and and the privilege it is to do it.
0: Engaging in such a diversity of enterprises, the livestock, the and the vegetables and and a lot of different kinds of livestock are are all of those integrated into the same rotation, or is the are the vegetables just kind of out there on their own doing their own thing?
1: Yeah. That. That that question presupposes a, a an earlier question, Chris. In that the reason that we have such a diversity stems from a farm philosophy that asks this question first. Uh, the question is, will what we are doing contribute to the health of the farm? And we understand health in a in a really wide and deep, uh, wholesome, whole farm kind of a way. So so we we never make a decision uh, on an enterprise based solely on that enterprise, but it really has to do with whether it contributes to the health of the farm. And if it doesn't, we pretty much ignore it. Um, uh, even, even if it might prove to be in the short run, more lucrative economically. Um, but we look at the long-term, we look at the whole farm. So, uh, so having said that, uh, how does a how does a whole farm operate in in the wholeness uh, of nature in an ecosystem? And we recognize that that nature never farms without animals, for example, uh, unto health. Uh, and um, and so our livestock and our vegetables really are all part of this same whole farm diversity. Everything moves on our farm. I mean, everything rotates. Uh, that we'll talk uh, a lot more competently about how the animals actually rotate through the gardens and fallow times and, and so forth. But it really stems from that that more philosophical um, stance. Zach, why don't you talk about animals in the garden? Sure. Well, we have uh, kind of basically two gardening approaches uh, happen every season on the farm. One of those Uh, it happens out actually in the pasture. They're kind of like, I guess they call them pasture patches where we're raising crops that uh, require a little bit more space. So like sweet corn and winter squash and potatoes. And there we're actually breaking into the pasture uh, for three or four seasons to raise the vegetables and then returning it back to pasture. And so uh, out there actually to do the breaking uh some seasons we're using hogs to kind of do the initial turning over of the soil of course that ground has been tended by livestock for years and years and years before we come to it to grow vegetables we're running the cattle over it we're running the chickens over it um and so it's it's pretty healthy biologically active uh soil and it's relatively easy to grow vegetables out there. So that's kind of the relationship between the livestock and the vegetables in one sense. But then we also have about an acre and a third um, and kind of more like permanent garden beds where we're doing more intensive cropping. So like lots of um, greens and roots and things like that. And the way that we use the livestock there is we follow um, a uh, system that's heavily inspired by Anne and Eric Nordell, uh, Pennsylvania, of taking a year off of production every year for part of the garden, um, growing uh, at least two mature cover crops, usually incorporating a summer bear fallow. And so that time gives us the opportunity to um, use laying hens to graze the cover crops Um, And actually, maybe to use them in the bare fallow as well without having a lot of the concerns that you would about having livestock like, you know, in and around vegetables while they're growing.
0: Right. So tell me me some of the details about how you're actually managing the laying hens on those cover crops right up next to the vegetable crops.
1: Sure. Well, that's something we continue to develop every year. I certainly wouldn't say uh, we have it completely figured out, but it's a lot of fun to um, make improvements every year. Uh, one of the pieces of equipment that help us do uh, this approach is electrified poultry netting. I'm not quite sure how we would be able to do it without the electrified poultry netting. We're using um, that to contain the birds and to move them around in the cover crops pretty easily. We're also in the process of designing um, like a mobile shelter that, that works with the birds out in the garden. So it has to be Pretty lightweight to be able to move around but we get a decent amount of wind out here so it also you know can't blow over. Putting those elements in place also being able to easily um, move seed and water that's a necessity. We're only in the, the fallow parts of the garden with the birds for maybe like six to eight weeks during the course of the season um, so it, it tends to be a lot to manage during that time because they're trying to move them quickly, but it also isn't like during the entire course of the season. uh, They spend most of their time actually out on the pasture.
0: And the other livestock that you have on the farm, are they integrated into the vegetable operation as well outside of the pasture gardens that you put in place?
1: We have found that just using the pigs pre-garden and the you know during the bear fallow season um, at this point seems to um, work pretty well in terms of of uh, managing the soil and and eating bugs and uh uh weed seeds and you know that sort of thing. There was a time many years ago that uh in the fall we might run cattle, you know, through to clean up um um some of the leftover stuff from the garden. But we haven't done that in a lot of years. So I don't and I don't know that that's part of your vision or plan. I don't think so, Zach at all. So really it's, it's those two classes of livestock that integrate in the garden. Yeah, yeah, pretty much just the laying hens uh, out in the in the permanent gardens, and then um, with, yeah, the rest of the animals certainly, like in the pasture patches, uh, are contributing a lot to the gardens, but they're separated by a good amount of time and space.
0: Now, when you talk about putting crops out in the pasture, I'm looking at a map of your farm, and it looks like you guys have a a pretty flat 99 acres.
1: That's right. Yeah. Yeah it is there's some there's some gently rolling areas uh um but it's not real hilly no
0: Talk to me a little bit more about how you're actually managing the the nordell style rotation in what's really a pretty small spot of vegetables what kinds of tools are you using to to manage the bare fallow and the and the cover cropping are you in there with tractors or are you doing all of this with the BCS or or other tools
1: Yeah and so in that um uh, acre and a third garden area i may go in there occasionally um with our uh what is it 1959 john deere 530 is that right there that's right yeah my great grandpa actually bought that tractor new uh when they got the farm but i might go in there every so often uh, with the disc just to kind of reset things but but uh like 90 percent of the time we're just using the bcs out there because it, it really isn't that much to manage. And so it's kind of divided into uh, four sections. Each one is about of a third of an acre. And so we're we're um, growing vegetables in two of those sections every year. Over the last couple of years, I've learned a lot from reading uh, like John martin Fortier's book. Um, of course, we got our start with uh Elliot Elliot Coleman's ideas. Um, I actually just finished up uh the urban farmer, Curtis Stones book, and, and so we're trying to use some of those styles of uh of, of techniques um for the intensive growing. So we kind of do the we do the 30-inch sort of semi-raised bed made with the BCS. We're trying to do close spacing um with uh a four-o pinpoint point uh, or an earthway, uh, doing a lot of transplanting. Uh, the last couple seasons we've really found a lot of use, great uses for the, the silage tarps, which has helped helped us to keep a pretty like minimum kill approach. So, like for instance, we just used the rotary power, power harrow on the BCS. And it's uh you know, I'm trying to think about like where to start and kind of describing how we do that with the Nordell rotation. Um maybe it's good to kind of start like in, in the fall. Uh so like last fall for the area that we're gonna be gardening now, um We were just coming out of like a six-week bare fallow period. So you're kind of given like a blank slate, right? So I went in and uh, shaped beds with DCS and like a disc killer bed shaper attachment from heart tools. Right. And uh, then sewed down most of those beds to um, an oat and pea cover crop. And that was, let's see, I was a little late. We kind of tried to do that toward the end of August. Maybe I think I was in early to mid-September at that point. We had a really mild fall, however, though, so it worked out well. So a lot of those beds are growing up a pretty good amount of of biomass and then winter killing over the course of the winter. Um, And then we just went in maybe a couple weeks ago and tarped all of those winter-killed beds. So they're kind of... uh, hanging out now, um, warming up a little bit. We got a bit of a cold spill here, so it's kind of chilly. But I I think those tarps help them warm up a little bit, but also um, help maybe germinate a generation of weed seed, uh, kill off any of the field peas that made it through the winter, that sort of thing, and just sort of like really mellow out the soil. The soil underneath those winter-killed oats is already pretty mellow, but we found that when we put those tarps on for a number of weeks, and then pull them back to start planting. It's just a pretty, pretty excellent conditions for that early in the spring. And of course, there's uh, really no, no tractor work to do. We might go over with that power harrow and sort of stir things up just a little bit. But uh, it's, it's we can kind of just get in and start going. Um, so that's for most of the beds for for the early season. I do have some beds that are in a rye cover crop. That was uh, sown again back in September and, of course, lived through the winter. And then I'll let those grow all the way nearly to maturity before I will go in with a roller crimper, a 30-inch roller crimper, and um, knock all that stuff down for fall-planted brassicas.
0: So doing a a really a true no-till system for those fall-planted brassicas.
1: Right, right. And this will just be our second or third season. So we've got a lot to figure out there, but it seems very promising
0: to me. That's kind of an exciting development. I mean, the no-till, I know there's a lot of interest in no-till vegetables, and there's a lot of different definitions of that. But I think when we really talk about a no-till crop, uh, that that Rodale method of rolling and crimping down an overwintered rye, I think it's one of the most interesting approaches out there.
1: It certainly caught my imagination when I started learning about it and was trying to get information and read the Rodale book. And of course that's geared um, for a lot of field crops. And there are some folks kind of in our general area who I think are starting to look at it for, um, you know, for their soybeans and stuff. But when I was looking into what options were available, you know, for a small scale vegetable operation with a BCS there, there isn't much yet. I hope to see it coming along soon, but, um, even as I've asked folks that might have a better sense of what kind of tools we could use. And I was looking at the um, no-till planters where they're cutting through that heavy residue and sticking seeds in the soil mechanically. And people are telling me, well, you just really can't get enough weight to do that on something that's only 30 inches wide. So we're we're still looking for the right kind of solutions for um, easily getting transplants through the, mulch into the soil. We're going to try some different stuff out this year, but we haven't found it yet.
0: With as much cover crop seeding as you're doing on that small acreage, how are you getting those cover crops in and established?
1: Yeah, that, <laughs> that was a little bit of an issue up until last season. For the, we used cover crops out in the pasture patches, and it's um, it works pretty well to use like a, a broadcast feeder, like a hand crank broadcast feeder, and then just disc it in and work it in. For the beds, uh I struggled for a while. I was actually out there hand scattering for a bit, which was kind of poetic for about the first twenty minutes and then <laughs> <laughs> you see how many beds you had left to do. <laughs> it got a lot less poetic um I tried ganging ganging uh like some of the earthways together, and that sort of worked. but just last season, I got a drop seeder, like a hand push. Drops here, which it was the key it, it just changed that job completely i found a like a 36 inch model so it fits over the bed nicely some of the seed dust still still down kind of the shoulders and into the pathways but i think that's great um because it's just uh, covering even more bare soil it's adjustable like it's a variable rate still trying to dial in the best um like the best numbers for each crop but basically you know what i wanted was an easy way to quickly put a lot of seed um, on these 30-inch beds, and that, that's been, been the ticket.
0: So it's my understanding that a lot of what you're producing is turning into product for your pizza night as well.
1: Yeah, that's true. The, um, the pizza night really started, uh, uh, Zach was helping on the farm, but he also was working in town um, helping to start and manage a, a coffee shop. And he was the bread baker for that, and and as a as a baker wanting uh, to do it in the best way possible, he he uh, coveted a, a brick oven of some sort, and uh, kept kind of talking about that um, uh, over and over again, and 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 I started to listen a little because when I left the parish, I also started a not-for-profit organization. I do clergy continuing education here on our farm and all nonprofits are are looking for a way to raise revenue. And so I thought, you know, maybe if Zach has this interest and passion and he he always does good research and so forth, that maybe we could marry that uh, um, energy that he had with this idea of a bread baking oven, but also a pizza oven. And at the time we were aware of the A to Z bakery in Wisconsin and they were doing pizzas and we contacted them and just said, how's this going and tell us about it. And they were encouraging uh, of us. So we um, ended up, there's a, about a half a mile from our farm. There's an old brick farmhouse that is uh, falling in. And I contacted the uh, farmer or neighbor and I said, Hey, you care if I tear a wall out of that, I'll pay you 10 cents a brick. And he said, that'd be fine. So we tore a wall out and, and reclaimed clean bricks and built a brick oven on the farm and started making pizzas. Uh, initially, as a revenue stream for the not-for-profit, but what we learned over time was that um, it, it distinguished our farm, you know, in, in terms of uh, what we offered. And so, you know, b- people didn't really have that much of a sense that it was revenue for a not-for-profit, but it was oh, that pizza farm. So the farm benefited in terms of marketing quite a bit from it, and and of course we in order to make it work uh i've tried to raise some things for it as well we don't um currently raise the wheat for that, that dough but you know, it was our basil and our tomatoes and uh, our our pigs for the pepperoni and sausage and and that sort of thing so it seemed to really go together pretty nicely uh, for for both enterprises
0: so tell me a little bit more about how that pizza night works is that a once a week thing for you guys
1: it is. It's uh, Friday evenings from 5 to 7 p.m., so it's a pretty short window. Uh, we only do pizzas. Um, we do nothing else. People will will bring other food if they want it. They bring your beverages. They bring a blanket or or, or lawn chairs and, and sit out in our side yard. Um, we try to have some of the... It's really near the garden, so they see that. We try to have maybe some of the livestock. We've got a handful of ducks in our grape arbor that try to keep the weeds down and they're a novelty the pigs sometimes are out there and they're a novelty for people as well there are there aren't a whole lot of what i call old mcdonald farms you know woo moo here and an oink oink there huh, around anymore and so so part of the benefit to people is not just that it's really good pizza but they come and and get this farm experience so it's very family friendly um we do it just during the season. So we start in June, we're done uh, in September. And uh, um, it, we oftentimes, it's volunteers really that, that help us do these pizzas. We have happened in the last couple of years upon, uh, since we work with restaurants and there tend to be the, the better restaurants, we ask if they would come and serve as a guest chef for a pizza night. So. Uh, nearly every week we have a guest chef from from one of the restaurants, and they create. Uh, we tell them what we have available, and they just create some pretty amazing, uh, stunningly different pizzas. Uh, and and that's a novelty for people too. We tend to they tend to sell very well, and it happens you know weekly, uh, which is uh, which is great. Plus, it's really really good pizza. <laughs> Having those guest chefs come to make the their specials has been a it's just been a great opportunity to deepen our relationship um, with the folks that are are buying our farm products. Um, number one, like it gives them a chance to come out to the farm, which a lot of chefs want to do, but we might be a little far and they're busy and don't have time. But it just you know, we're spending a couple hours making pizza with someone. It just gives you a chance to talk a little bit more about what you do, about the, the farming side of things. I think it deepens their respect for the work and for the food. And we just, we have a really good time. It's sort of funny because Dad mentioned that I sort of worked in coffee shops and stuff for a while, but I don't really consider myself as someone with a lot of experience in food service. And the pizza nights, you know, when it's just our family and volunteer labor, labor can be a little bit stressful, but for these folks that are just doing this every day, uh, it, it, it's a walk in the park. It's super easy for them, so they're actually kind of—they feel like they're relaxing and having fun <laughs> doing this, and they make things go a lot more smoothly because they know what they're doing. And so that's kind of been a nice surprise. We just sort of tried it out on a whim, but uh, it's, it's something we look forward to every season now. There will be somewhere, uh, uh, anywhere from a um, hundred to two hundred people here on the farm on a Friday night.
0: That's a lot of people to accommodate on your farm. I'm looking at be because I can spy on you. I'm, I'm looking at you on Google maps here. And where, where do you park all those people? Like, how do you accommodate that, that large of a crowd on your farm?
1: Yeah. Yeah. We, we uh, happened onto this some years ago. We used to do a, a, a kind of like a, um, fancy dinner in the gardens event every September. And so some of those logistics we were able to work out, you know, at that time and parking was one of them. People park all the way uh, along our long farm lane on the south side of the lane at perpendicular parking. And so we can accommodate um, dozens of cars, you know, parking. And then sometimes it'll be the length of the lane all the way to the road.
0: And where are most of your customers coming from? Are they coming from North Manchester, which is a pretty small town, I think about 6,000 people, or are they coming from further away?
1: Well, the pizza customers uh, are are we have a a pretty strong core of people from town or from Wabash County that come. We have a Manchester University here, and so a lot of the faculty tend to really like this kind of thing. Um, but we have people from Fort Wayne, from the Warsaw, Winona Lake uh, area. We have people from Indianapolis that drive up. People from South Bend that will drive down. We've had people come from Chicago before, from into Michigan, um, on a on a somewhat. You know, regular, it's not unusual, I guess, to have people uh, drive a couple hours. Um, We, uh, this was a few years ago, but in the Chicago Tribune, there was an article on Pizza Farms, and we were named, and, and, you know, as close enough to drive to, and people did.
0: That's pretty cool to get that kind of a reach.
1: Yeah, it sure is.
0: How have you guys dealt with regulators on that issue? Have you had to get licensed as a commercial kitchen?
1: We well know that, and this, you know, we stumbled uh, upon uh, a lot of things that have been in our favor. Not all of them, of course, but when we started this, it was and and remains entirely for the purpose of uh, raising revenue for the not-for-profit. All the proceeds go to this 501c3 organization, and so it's like a glorified bake sale. And so, in terms of regulation. Even though we have tended a lot of those kinds of things, that if we did have a commercial kitchen or whatever, you know, washable ceiling and walls, and, I mean, all that sort of thing, we're not uh, officially regulated because it's a it's a not for profit organization. So um, that hasn't been an issue for us. Now our on farm store. Uh, is an official retail food establishment and so we are inspected and regulated and so forth by our county health department and you get a permit every year but but the pizza thing is outside of that
0: now you guys have also had some other interesting regulatory experiences with your on-farm processed poultry right Indeed we have,
1: (laughs) we we celebrated a one year anniversary here fairly uh, recently of uh, a victory in that department. We are so grateful for that. But uh, um, yes, we um, were as part of this diversity and and we have been on um, quite an expansion over the last few years. Um, From 2003 to uh, 2013, pretty much this farming was really limited to me and Zach would come home in summers because he was away at school or, or other kinds of things you know to help out but then in 2015 Zach decided that he wanted to come back to the farm full-time and and so we have been on a, a quite an expansion since that time we formed a limited partnership and and have you know widened our markets you know Quite a bit, and so on. But one of the pieces of that was to figure out how to do on-farm processing. In part for quality control, some for expense. It's, it's not. It's it's less expensive, but not not a whole lot less expensive. Uh, and then certainly for the the uh, well-being of the animals, the supply chain is so much shorter. When uh, on a Saturday morning we go out to the field 150 yards away and and get birds and bring them up to the processing facility and, and process them and, and chill them and put them in a freezer. It's a pretty short supply chain. So anyway, that was a, a goal. And we investigated uh, what it would take to do that and discovered a 40-some-year-old federal law that uh, um, is called an exemption. It allows farmers who raise their own birds to process their own birds um, if it's from a thousand to twenty thousand, there is regulation involved. You have to have an inspected facility that is constructed to their specifications and you know proper labeling and proper sanitation practices and water tests and all that sort of thing. So it is regulated. But it's not official state or USDA inspector who's here when the kill is happening. That's that's some of the difference. Uh, so so that's what what we're exempt from um under under this Federal law, and we investigated, talked with our own state uh, uh, regulators on that. Yes, indeed, that law is recognized in Indiana. So we built a, spent plenty of money and built a processing facility and started processing these birds and selling them to everybody, including restaurants, which is allowed under the law. Um, but we had a, a a state legislator who thought that um, that was unsafe. And so proposed legislation to make what we were doing not legal, not at least that we couldn't sell to restaurants, which at that time was about 30 percent of our chicken business. And, um, you know, this started to move through the legislature. And it's, it's hard to investigate a lot of these things. So on the face of it, it could make sense. If you wanted to make a case and say, oh, it's not inspected, it must not be safe. But when you really look at it, you see that um, birds that have been produced under this model have actually had a better track record. There's there's not a single case of foodborne illness over those 40-some years. Now, that's not to say that it hasn't happened, but not a single recorded case, at least. So, you know, you'd think it was unsafe. There should at least be some evidence. So anyway, that was kind of our argument and that it was indeed safe and that it was You know, a significant part of our business and certainly our business plan. And and we had a restaurant, um, Joseph's DeQueese Restaurant in Roanoke, that really wanted to buy our birds. We're the only ones in the area at that time that did Freedom Rangers instead of the Cornish Cross bird. And they really thought they were superior in terms of flavor and so forth. Anyway, so we uh, uh, had quite an ordeal of uh, spending a whole winter studying the Indiana Code and, and making trips to the state house uh, and and finally in the end got um, um, significant enough support, which came in fair measure from a, a social media campaign hashtag keep Chicken on the menu uh, We had some of our um, our chefs that were you know serving our chicken and telling our story and there was enough interest in it that that those voices got through the legislators and they started to listen and and in the end um it it wasn't they weren't sure who was going to win which side but it was threatening enough that um the lieutenant governor who is our our state uh, agricultural uh, head uh, got involved and brought all the parties together and we uh, came up with a solution um that that essentially uh, mimics what the kind of regulation that happens in restaurants in order to get you know food safely on a plate. In, in addition to doing uh, um, the state doing some microbial testing and that sort of thing, which is entirely fair. It's it's appropriate regulation. We we like having this regulation actually that's scale appropriate because um, it gives us you know credibility. Um, Uh, So we're really grateful that it went that way uh, rather than than not letting us do it because somehow we weren't uh, inspected, um, which wasn't necessarily the value they thought it was.
0: All right. With that, we're going to stop here, take a break, get a word from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Zach and Jeff Hawkins from J.L. Hawkins Family Farm in northern Indiana. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are often so mistaken for just a rototiller, but it is truly a superior piece of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy where small farms are a way of life, BCS tractors are built to standards of quality and durability expected of real agricultural equipment, the kind of dependability that every farm needs. I've worked with BCS tractors for over 24 years, and I wouldn't consider anything else for my small tractor needs, and I'm not the only fan More than 1.5 million people in 50 countries have discovered the advantages of owning Europe's most popular two wheel tractors. These really are small tractors with the kind of features found on their four wheel cousins and a wide array of equipment power harrows, rotary plows, flail mowers, snow throwers, sickle bar mowers, chippers, log splitters, and more. Check out bcsamerica.com to see photos and videos of BCS in action. bcsamerica.com. Perennial support is also provided by Vermont Compost Company makers of Fort V and Fort Light Potting Mixes for Certified Organic Plant Transplant Production. In the transplant greenhouse, all of your investment in plant material, heat, labor, and overhead depend absolutely on the performance of the media where you expect your plants to grow. And that media has a really hard job to do, produce a healthy plant in just a few cubic centimeters of soil. And Vermont Compost simply does it better. Here's what Zach and Jeff Hawkins have to say about it.
1: I just started using Fort V actually this season, and the difference in the quality of the transplants between what I was using before and uh, and Fort V is just immediately noticeable, visibly. In fact, my dad will walk by the flat um, and just be like, the color looks different this year. Now, what's going on? So I, I use it because it's it's a quality product, and it's evident that a lot of care has gone into it, and it works really well. And he's really right, Chris. It's noticeable to me that the color of those seedlings is just deep and rich and elegant, and you can see it. So it's good stuff.
0: Taking care of growers by taking care of transplants since 1992, vermontcompost.com. All right, and we're back with Zach and Jeff Hawkins from J.L. Hawkins Family Farm in Northern Indiana. Now, just before we went on break, Jeff, you were talking about the the regulatory hurdles that you guys went through to be able to sell your on-farm processed poultry to restaurants and how important that was and how you actually came up with a regulatory solution with the legislature that was, that makes sense and that was appropriate. I'd like to dig in just a little bit more about how you actually do that poultry production on the farm.
1: Yeah. We've uh, <laughs> over the course of time, as I mentioned earlier, um, we have, uh, attempted and experimented in all sorts of different ways to do it, and and with every model that you choose, there are benefits and there are liabilities, and it, it, it kind of you know depends on the balance of those things usually how you go forward. So when we started, we uh, I I started doing this um, a long time ago, decades ago, when Joel Salatin from Virginia. Uh, first started to come on the scene. He produced, I think it was a 14-page mimeographed book on how to build his uh, pasture pens. They were 10 by 12, and they were made out of uh, wood and and chicken wire and some metal. And we built uh, three of those and started doing his model out in the pasture here on the farm. And actually, both of my kids have two children, Zach, and then he has a younger sister, Sarah, and, um, and so the kids were involved in that and that helped me in the morning, do chores, moving those pens. And Sarah did it in the evening and, and they were able to save some money and buy that first old beater car and all that sort of thing. So there was some incentive for them to do it. Um, but, but after a while we kind of decided that those those pens were were not ideal for our circumstance and we designed our own pasture pens made out of hog panels that we bent uh in half with 45 degree corners so they wouldn't pile up and and use the tarp over two-thirds of it and, and they work pretty well uh, for us about 45 birds in a pen and but every day that the labor is pretty um Um, extensive, Uh, you have to move those pens at least once a day so that they leave their manure behind and get fresh grass and bugs and so forth and feed and water twice a day. And and when you've got, you know, 10 or 15 pens, that's not a small enterprise. Um, So as we've now expanded and we do about 4,000 meat birds a year now, um, the labor that it took to do that was just it was just getting out of hand it sort of spend your whole day with the chickens is what it felt like so we moved to a day range system which is where we use this electrified poultry netting and when we started with that we tried to configure the sections uh uh where the the birds were in sort of a uh rectangular long way and we had some low shelters that the birds you know would get under uh in case there's Rain or or with uh, shade and so on. We d- we discovered, however, that we uh, the electrified poultry netting was fairly effective against ground predation, but that aerial predators. We have some hawks around, and that proved to be something of a problem. So we experimented with kind of moving those electric uh, netting, and that was also very time consuming. And uh, finally, last year, halfway through the season. We determined that we could, you know, set up um it's three three nets. They're 164 feet long each. Uh three nets in a pretty much a square. We could use four of these low shelters. We could put two hundred birds in there at a time. We could just move the shelters and not move the netting. Uh and uh and it was much less labor intensive and if we positioned things right, the hawk pressure wasn't too great. Um, we make feed twice a week. We use 300 pound range feeders. And so we didn't have to carry buckets every day to them. We use some automatic waters that have floats on it. Uh, uh, and so the water issue wasn't so great. Um, and so so that's our system now. Um, they go out to the pasture at uh, four weeks old. Before that, they're in a brooder um, because especially this time of year, they need supplemental heat in order to get started. We get 200 birds, old uh, birds, every Friday. And they're mailed to us from Pennsylvania. We, uh, we have an old school bus that is our brooder. and uh, It has four sections, and so we put the birds uh, in Section 1 on a Friday. When a week goes by, we move those birds to Section 2, so there's room in Section 1 for the new birds because Section 1 has uh, the greatest degree of supplemental heat um they move from two to three and three to four and by week four then they're in the back section and we can drive the bus out to the pasture and just take them right out uh so that works real well unless you have a wet season (laughs) and then it's a little bit of a problem so there's always issues um we are going to experiment this year with doing some um Brooding actually out in the pasture when it gets warm enough here, we may not need the supplemental heat if we can insulate it well enough. So it, it keeps going through different iterations. Um, but the birds stay on the farm about nine to ten weeks, depending on um, uh, what time of year it is. They don't grow as quickly in the in the when it's super hot here. So we take them ten weeks, and then they're as I said on Saturday morning they come up to uh, we get up early, and we go out at dawn and and, uh, round up the birds, bring them up to our our butcher facility, and and it takes us um, maybe about uh, three hours from um, the time we get them up here until they're done and we're cleaning up uh, to butcher 200 birds a week. And then we have a walk-in freezer. Um, We actually keep the birds uh, uh, for a while, and then uh, on Mondays, usually package the birds and freeze them um, in our walk-in freezer and, uh, and then they're for sale. We keep some of the birds fresh, um, and deliver early then in the week to some of our restaurants. They would prefer to have a fresh rather than a frozen bird. Um, and then the rest of them are sold, uh, as frozen birds. still uh, they're either part of the meat CSA, uh, the farm share CSA share, um, or people can come to our small farm store and buy them.
0: When you say that they're part of the farm share with the CSA program, how are you delivering those chickens in a safe way uh, alongside the vegetables
1: well we uh we have a refrigerated truck um and so we use that uh, and and that can maybe explain some about how he sets up there so that uh, um, those things are are distinct and kept face and so forth in yet a reasonable way. So when people move through, there's a good flow to it. We got this refrigerated sprinter van last season, and that has uh, allowed us to, to do the kind of distribution that we're doing now with this farm share. Um, so, like, we're transporting them in that. Everything is in um, separate containers. Uh, and then when we set up, we're doing market-style CSA now, um, so we're putting the vegetables out on uh, tables, but the um, chickens, which are frozen, you know, are in, in coolers or uh, insulated containers and kept separate from those. People go through and they get their vegetables first. Uh, when you sign up for the CSA, you get a reusable cloth bag for your vegetables and then you get a reusable insulated bag for your meat. Um, so in that way, we're even encouraging them to keep them separate as they take them home. That's our basic approach there. One of the things, Chris, that we've been uh, uh, working quite steadily toward and very mindful of has to do with uh, the food safety concerns on the farm and keeping things uh, uh, very separate. Uh, you, in terms of, as Zach mentioned, time and space or process. You know, we don't go do animal chores and then go into the garden, for example, with those boots. And and we have uh, separate colored containers. Uh, for livestock, for animal products, and 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 vegetable products, separate areas for things, and so um, that's that's been uh, something that we've really been developing um, very intentionally here on the farm, from
0: start to finish. Yeah, I think that's so important with a diversified operation to to just have that heightened awareness. I think that, I mean, obviously not having produce and livestock on the same farm is, is technically the safest thing to do. But, you know, if you want to get down to realistically, I think there are certainly ways that it can be managed very safely. And, and most of that comes down to, I think, an awareness. And like you say, just working hard to keep those processes and products separate.
1: Right. You have to be very mindful of it. You know, that wasn't the old way of farming. My grandpa, you know, wouldn't have thought of that at all. Uh, um, and you know, just kind of did his work and went from one thing past the other. But we uh, and we're we're real intentional too about uh, uh, working to train our our people. And when people come to tour the farm, you know, we even try to do a little education. Now we're going to go to the gardens first, and then we're going to go see the livestock. And it's a food safety issue, so we, we try to educate you know folks in that regard as well. It sort of succeeds or fails in the design of the system too, and. Dad and I both really like um, the winter time to kind of step back and evaluate and plan. Um, and we we found it more and more necessary to uh, use that time to, to think through the food safety implications of our of our work on the farm. And um, it's uh, yeah, it's been really necessary to uh, get our our help on board as well. It used to kind of just be my dad and I, and we divide a lot of labor. I spent a lot of time in the garden. Dad um, works with the livestock a lot. And as we would bring people in to help us uh, kind of through an informal internship program and some part-time help, um, in some ways we were, we really wanted to give them that uh, whole farm experience. But practically as, as we've grown it's been necessary to kind of assign people to certain areas of the farm for the most part and by doing that we're able to i think get in front of a lot of potential cross contamination.
0: now the one livestock group that we haven't talked about is the beef production can you tell me a little bit more about how that works on your farm
1: yeah that's it's we're sort of in the evolution there as well um when I started doing this uh, long ago, I was committed to doing a, a grass-finished product and, and did a fair amount of research and reading and recognized that you know, there were some breeds that finished on grass better than others. Uh, and in typical fashion, I sort of stumbled upon uh, Jersey cattle as those that finish quite well on grass. And the way I stumbled upon it was um, nobody wanted jerseys at that time, and they were really cheap. <laughs> so I got 'em and then and then learned that that yeah, indeed, this meat is, gosh, really, really good just on grass. So that's been for some time the basis of our our. Uh, it's a dairy breed, but it's been the basis of our beef business. Um I uh, we supplemented that. There was then then Jerseys got popular and so it was kind of a Jersey Holstein cross or or some of whatever, you know, I could get my hands on sometimes, but mostly it was still that dairy breed kind of stuff. Um, but then now lately we are, um, um, experimenting with, with some of a more heritage breed for a couple of reasons. One, um, uh, the, uh, the quality of the meat, uh, on, on like a red pole, for example, is one of the ones that we are favoring at this time. Uh, really like the cattle, like the way they grow, uh, they're not, really really huge they're kind of a smaller framed animal um finish well on grass we have some access uh to to at least some not a huge amount but some uh, of those and know how they've been taken care of and might at some point uh shift from purchasing feeders to to, uh moving toward a cow calf operation where we have our own cows uh, that have on the farm um so we're we're slowly kind of moving toward that. But the cattle enterprise, you know, they're on our farm for two years. Uh, And so that's a long, you know, long time to keep something um, uh, before you can harvest it, before you can, you know, you can sell it. So we can't be extremely nimble with it. Um, So we're, we're moving toward these red pools, but, but currently still the, the Jersey seem to be the basis you know, for us. So this year we'll be, uh, and, and cattle prices were were really expensive um, not all that long ago, and so we resisted, and our herd's pretty small right now. But this year we'll be getting um, small uh, bottle calves and, and uh, I'm starting them at a very young age um, and keeping them on the farm for a couple of years then before they're uh, able to be harvested as beef.
0: When you say the herd's pretty small, how small is small? Yeah, I have. I only have nine cattle out on
1: the pasture right now. That's that's really small. Uh, I mean, yeah, compared to this last season would have been what, like twenty, twenty-five? Yeah, I was. You know, usually we'd have twenty-five or thirty. Uh, um, but yeah, I just resisted. I didn't see how I could uh, I could afford to buy cattle, keep them two years, and maybe make something on them so we just diminished quite a bit but this year we'll probably end up getting about 24 to 30 of those um bottle calves and then do the same thing next year as well as add some of these red poles as that comes on so we'll be building the herd pretty quickly but but it will be a while before we're able to harvest those yeah and cattle cattle are uh like you kind of mentioned they're not really huge money makers so they're they're kind of like um like sweet corn for us, where we wanna have enough on the farm to satisfy the desire, and everybody loves getting that kind of ground beef um in their uh farm share every week yeah, but thankfully uh they're kind of they're I guess probably the most hands off animal that we raise we We did a kind of an intensive mob grazing style for a while, although we've backed off that a little bit. Um, because there's there's plenty to um, demand our attention during the course of the day, and so you kind of have to set things up for, like, if the animal can take care of itself, we'll let it do that until we have to step in. Right. Yeah, so that's right. The farm chores, if all goes well and they're respecting fences and so on, is a it's kind of a daily fence move, uh, you know, making sure they have access to, to water and so on. So it can be uh, an enterprise where they're, You know they're tending them themselves. Uh, Again, as long as the season is providing adequate grass and those sort of things, we do one cutting of hay um, every year, just first cutting, um, and then keep it on the farm so we can feed it if we need to through the winter. But generally, they graze year round. The pastures are about 50% fescue, and fescue maintains its nutrition throughout the winter, unlike the other grasses, and so. And then of course they're outside, they're healthier when they're outside. They're they're keeping they're leaving their manure outside, so we're not cleaning a barn, you know, as much as if they were confined. Um we've got this little woodlot, as Zach said, it's it's a pretty sparse woodlot, but enough so that they can be out of the wind. Uh and so this for the first time this year actually they have not been in the barn at all. Used to be we'd bring them in the barn when it was windy. And then um um we would use the Joel Salatin system of uh, Put down straw. They would leave their manure on top of that. Then we'd spread corn, and put straw on top of that. Then we'd turn pigs in there, and the pigs would root and try to find every kernel of corn and aerate that, so it would turn into uh, something of a pre-compost. <laughs> so it was a it was a pretty good system. But cattle um, yeah, haven't been in the barn at all this winter, and so uh, we won't even be doing you know that task with them.
0: With so many livestock species, plus the vegetables to be managed on your farm, and marketing through CSA, farmers market, restaurants, and a pizza night. That's a whole lot of different moving pieces to manage. How do you guys keep all those balls in the air?
1: That's an interesting assumption, Chris. <laughs> that we do keep all those balls in the air.
0: If you're still in business, you're doing somewhat of a job of keeping and keeping them in the air. So,
1: yeah, no, that I'm sorry, I just had to say that. That's okay. <laughs> uh, um, Zach mentioned earlier that that our if all goes well and we get some breathing room in the winter time we're we're pretty committed to um laying a fairly detailed plan um and then doing our best to follow it during the course of the growing season and that really is a most valuable tool for us to kind of you know know pretty much where we're headed at least but it, but again um you know these are we we recognize everything on this farm is moving. Everything has kind of a sequence. Everything has a place. And and so if we can figure that sequence out uh, uh, early on, barring extreme weather events or or unforeseen kinds of things, we always have a plan B and a plan C. But uh, um, generally that planning... Assists us a great deal uh, as we as we try to keep everything you know moving and in its place. That's also been uh, necessary to. um, I guess I hesitate to use the word divide the labor because uh, we're it's a small farm and we all kind of get pulled into everything. But I think it's Joe Salatin uses the idea of systems, and like I certainly have my little system on the farm, and, and Dad has his where. We're the ones who are in charge and people know, um, you know, to come to me if there's a question about the garden or to go to dad, if there's a question about the chicken. Um, and so we, we do depend on that. And then our, our relationship in bringing everything together to kind of have the whole farm function successfully.
0: With regards to the planning, um, okay. Jeff, it's, it's really easy to say, oh, we, you know, we do a really thorough job of planning over the winter. What is, but, but it's another thing to actually do that. What does that actually look like on your farm? What are the tools that you're using for making sure that things go from kind of this fuzzy idea in your head to actually, you know, the cows are going to be here on this day and the broccoli is going to be here on that day.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Zach and I are great spreadsheet fans (laughs) and, uh, (laughs) uh, He he has has uh, insisted that we use the Google Doc, Google Sheet kind of thing and, and uh he's really right because then we have access and we can share it even with our help and so forth. So so um yeah, so over these last few weeks, for example, um I've uh mapped out, you know, pretty thoroughly uh, uh the um when I when I anticipate Having pigs come to the farm, we're we're in the phase now of uh, we buy feeder pigs. Um, We did a little bit of of our our own breeding and farrowing um, here, but at this stage, it really makes more sense for us to buy feeders that Prices are really pretty good on that and a uh, um, little less of a management issue at this stage. So I've mapped that out pretty well. Um, when that's going to happen, when those pigs will be ready uh, to butcher, who's going to butcher them. they uh many of my appointments, you know, so that I'm not stuck at the last minute. Oh, I have pigs that need to be butchered. Sorry, we're full for, you know, four months. That kind of thing. Um, have that mapped out pretty well. I'm working, uh, continuing now to work on the location of where my meat birds will be in the field and what's going to be necessary there, we have some systems in place where we make feed on Mondays and Thursdays because um, our broilers generally that's you know when we need it um, um, they can those three fifty pound feeders generally will last three or four days. Uh, and then we'll also add and make feed um, on one of those days for the hogs and maybe on another day for the laying hens have mapped out uh, um, where where the field work is going to happen. Um, we have uh, 10 acres of pasture that we're plowing up for our, our non-GMO corn that we raise and then use as feed for our pigs and chickens. Uh, next to that is where we had the corn last year. And so that'll be a small grain, um, you know, kind of have... All that in place now, and the seed here on the farm for when the weather's fit to get that stuff seeded. So, I mean, it's a lot of paperwork. It's a lot of desk work, you know, where you just imagine and envision and lay these things out uh, uh, where they're all supposed to go, you know. And then Zach and I work together too. Um, for example, I'm going to um, shortly, as soon as we're convinced that we can keep water flowing to the pasture and it won't freeze, we'll get that going again. We've got um, pipes uh, laid on top of the ground. Um, the plastic pipe laid on top of the ground so we can water out in the field. I'll start my pigs out in the pasture and I'll um, time it in such a way so they end up where Zach wants to plow the garden for sweet corn uh, next year, plow the pasture, and you know, for garden for sweet corn next year. So it's a lot of desk work uh, uh, trying to map all these things and how they go on the farm. Um, but we we just take that pretty seriously in the wintertime, you know, trying to get it laid out. For the garden, uh, Google Drive has become pretty indispensable. When I when I took over the planning of the garden, I came across a spreadsheet developed at Michigan State University. I think it was I think it was for their student organic farm, um, which had a, it was you know a lot of formulas already plugged in for uh, planning a CSA. So I started using that, and then over the years I kind of tweaked it to fit um, our operation and just the way. The way my mind works, I guess. But uh that really becomes the heart of the garden plan. And then uh that was an Excel spreadsheet, but I put it into Google Sheets. So I always have it at my fingertips with my iPhone in the um in the field or in the in the greenhouse or wherever. So I'm pretty constantly looking at that um to see what needs to get done, updating it, um, uh, making notes in the spreadsheet so it's all collected there. And then we, you know, we use um, Google Drive for for a number of other things, too, whether it's like uh, signing up people for the CSA or um, keeping keeping records. Uh, In fact, this season, uh, I tried to do this a few years ago, and we just couldn't stick with it. But this season, we're going to be trying to use the Veggie Compass system to... to track our labor and to track expenses, so we can do a better job of, of um, analyzing profits at the end of the season. So yeah, those spreadsheets. We used to call my dad Chart Man when uh, I was growing up, and <laughs> I guess I got it honestly.
0: Nice. nice. I think there's worse. There's worse skills to have, right, Jeff?
1: For me, it's a coping mechanism. My wife says I have adult <laughs> onset ADD, so I gotta put it in a chart, or I'll just get distracted. <laughs> And and that Zach is really the he's the king though of I I, uh, um, um, I I over time have come to recognize I am coming to recognize let's not give myself that much credit yet I'm coming to recognize the value of careful record keeping I've not been particularly wonderful about that and and Zach is, is really taking that to a new level here on the farm and his encouragement will get me there too I think but that that's a um, that's just pretty important. You know, we're a small batch farm. The margin isn't real great. And so the kinds of things that we have to do to stay in business will be, um, these particular, (laughs) you know, I call them fussy, fussy kinds of things, but there's, there's really a place for it. If you want to stay in business, I think.
0: Just on the, on the subject of profitability without going into specific numbers or anything, are you guys making a living on the farm now?
1: Well, uh, after a fashion, I would say that the farm for me, until that came back in 2013 or 2014, really the farm for me was basically a big break-even proposition, and and so my living would come through the not-for-profit, which the farm hosted and you know contributed to, and and so forth. But when he came back, it was well. Now wait a minute. You know this farm needs to be uh, some place where both of us make a living. Then if we're going to dedicate our time to it. So currently, uh, um, Zach is making something of a living, though it's fairly meager at this stage. And um, I don't get uh, an actual paycheck from the farm yet, but um, I am looking to next year. Um, nevertheless, there's tons of value from it. You know, we, we uh, the farm uh, is responsible to, you know, cover some of the costs that if we just lived in town, we'd have to, you know, cover. So um so in some sense, that's that's certainly a paycheck. So right now, one person <laughs> is, is is making a living, and, and next year we anticipate the second one will be.
0: With the two of you working together on the farm, you know, a father-son dynamic is not always the, the smoothest and, and easiest thing, especially when you've got people both engaged in the same enterprises and things are pretty high stakes. How do you make that work?
1: Well, I'm going to answer it first, Zach, if that's okay with you, because I think the onus of that question is on the old guy more than the young guy. Uh, I observe that in these kind of relationships, and especially in farming, it's you know it's the old guy that's the stick in the mud and stubborn and and all that sort of thing, and that really is an impediment to a good relationship. Um, Violet, a tremendous amount of respect for Zach and for his wisdom with things. He's a hard worker. Somebody raised him right, I think, so that's a good thing. Um and so I am I am uh, ever mindful that one of my major jobs here is to is to listen to him and take him seriously. That doesn't mean we can't disagree, that doesn't you know, at all. I mean we certainly can't. And and we can work that out. Um but but I've pledged to not be that stick in the mud. And I think I think that um that's a big responsibility you know it really is on the old guy having said that uh you know that that's worthy of respect and uh and that matters a great deal too so from my perspective anyway i'm really grateful that he wants to come back and that i um am able to continue to turn things over step by step you know to him um and super confident that that he's well up to the task it's really kind of nice to get old because you can kind of say things like, you know, I'm too old to do that. You guys do it. Uh, <laughs> so there's some of a privilege to it.
0: <laughs> How about from your perspective, Zach? Yeah, I've been I've been really grateful um, to my
1: dad for uh, taking that approach. Um, I think another important piece is that we both do have our own fears of management, fears of operation, and uh, Dad was gracious uh, in, in many ways to kind of give me a lot of responsibility right away and let me make a lot of my own mistakes. Um, when I'm sure he could have uh, stepped in uh, to give me um, some guidance, he gives me lots of guidance, but I think he'll often uh, let me come to him for that. And that's been, um, that's really kind of helped me develop as a farmer. I think also it, it's, you know, no one planned this, but I was away from the farm for many years after graduating high school, and I think by leaving and gave, gaining some perspective, um, and then coming back uh, as a partner in farming, lent something to the to the nature of our relationship, where we've been able to work together uh, as as equal partners um, and to learn a lot from each other. But I also think that it's uh, it's just really important that we both really love working on the farm we both care for it and we both get a lot of joy from it we both have a lot of fun and we're able to to keep that as part of the relationship when we're not you know trying to figure out a problem or like you know plan the next season we're usually coming to each other with just kind of the next crazy idea or what if we tried this and that i don't know that just it keeps things a little bit lighter and uh i think it keeps us both in pretty good spirits well, we do both have the same temperament in that farming to us is is not a job. It's I mean, it's a vocation if you look at the root of that word, kind of a calling. And we do feel called to it. We're passionate about it. We both see it as something of an adventure. Uh we both would claim that it's it's not only our, our work, but it's our entertainment. I mean we just like doing it. <laughs> and uh and you know, to share that temperament goes a long way too, I think.
0: Do you both live together there on the farm? Uh, No, that's
1: another key part of keeping the relationship uh, (laughs) uh, intact. So uh, my wife and I live very close. It's actually just right across the pasture in a small field. So it's a pretty short commute. um, But... Being able to, uh, you know, part ways at the end of the day for a little while and have have our own home places, I think, keeps things running
0: smoothly. And Zach, you mentioned your wife and Jeff, you mentioned your wife earlier. Are they involved in the farm?
1: My wife was a public school teacher until last year, and she retired uh, from that. And and so when you live on a farm, you're certainly somewhat part of it, but she never saw it really as uh, uh, her calling necessarily. And and that remains to this day, though, she is more involved because she's here uh, in some of the tasks. Um, One way that though she's she's really involved in, in this, she's a formidable presence, which is sort of needed for somebody who can be fairly bullheaded about the farm. And one of the ways that shows up is uh, uh, she works pretty hard to get me off of the farm in one fashion or another. Um, I would kind of just stay here and work all the time, but she's more social. And so in terms of uh, occasional things like that, or, or re- most recently, um, we spent a week in South Carolina on vacation. And uh, that doesn't come easy for me necessarily to leave for a week. Um, you know, livestock still need attending, and there's always some crisis that happens. But she just declares it, uh, demands it, and it has to happen. And 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 that's a that's a real gift. So that's a, a sort of a coming at it from a little different angle. <laughs> but it really contributes to the health of the farm because it contributes to the health of this farmer. Um, so yeah, she's involved certainly
0: in that way, but not day to day. How about your wife, Zach? It's similar with my wife, Kira. Um,
1: she is uh, an actor actually so she works at um a regional theater in our area and actually teaches um, at the university in town too but uh it's because it is a small family farm she gets roped in as well. Kind of find her helping with pizza night or um oh you're you're heading to you know this town, can you take these eggs to this restaurant on your way, that sort of thing. And we actually just um had a daughter about five months ago. And so uh, she's, of course, we're, we're both, you know, that, that changes everything, right? <laughs> and your time gets structured a lot differently. And so it's nice that we're both not so focused on the work of the farm. So we're freed up for a lot of those other things. Yeah, you did, you know, mention that too. Kathy is involved certainly in pizza night. But uh, I mm-hmm. think I'm still, uh, uh, you know, pretty heavily involved. In, and, in, and you know, many of the farm decisions You know, we, I mean, run by her, and she has, you know, really good wisdom on a lot of those things. I do need to say that. It's not like I didn't want to make it sound like she was not involved or or held it at arm's length. She doesn't, you know, at all. But you don't find her, you know, on the tractor, you know, disc in that area of the garden for a And sometimes I forget, like, so Kira, my wife, is from suburban Minneapolis, so definitely more of a city girl. But she actually came when we first started dating and spent a summer on the farm. Uh, with me and my family, like, you know, putting pepper plants in the ground. And really, uh, she's like, kind of like technically an intern, I suppose, although not not really, um, because, you know, she came um, to be with me. But she got, early on in our relationship, she got a a true taste of what uh, the rhythms of the farm and what the work is. Um, And I think that because of that, she has a lot of emotional ownership in the farm. Um, and, and cares for it, you know, and and uh, obviously cares um, for my love for it, and and I I could see down the line. And I don't know if that should I'll ever be full-time on the farm, but um, she certainly does love it. And I could see her taking on more of a formal role in the future. And I do want to say one other thing too about, that. I mean, now that I think about it, I was just thinking about, you know, Kathy washes uh, eggs for us, for example. I mean, but what her her real responsibility here, and it it really is a, a significant responsibility with regard to the farm, um, she sees this as her home first and our home first and then a farm second. And I can tend to reverse those. And and she enforces um, um, pretty strongly that whole sense of maintaining a sense of home. She cares about its beauty and how it looks and where boundaries are like on pizza night and I mean all that sort of thing. And she takes that responsibility seriously. And it's a really good thing. I mean, I think that that uh, um, all passionate farmers risk being uh, captured way too mightily by the farm and by its tasks and by its demands and its responsibilities um, to the detriment maybe of it being a home. And, and she doesn't let that happen. Um, so that's, again, pretty huge in terms of the success and the health of this farm. And, and I really credit her with that.
0: With that, we're going to turn to the lightning round. And we're going to get a quick word from one more sponsor, and then we'll be right back. This lightning round and the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Farmer's Web, software for your farm. Farmer's Web makes it easy to work with your buyers, saving you time, increasing efficiency, reducing mistakes, and streamlining order management from start to finish. No more lost order slips and invoices. Know which of your buyers have already paid and which have not. Keep records and download your financial data. Farmers Web helps you manage orders from buyers who place them online, but also from those who order by phone, text, or email. Save time and reduce errors by keeping all of your orders in one place, automatically generating harvest and picking lists, product catalogs, and packing slips. Farmers Web helps inform your buyers of delivery routes, pickup locations, lead times, and order minimums, while also helping you keep track of buyer payment terms, special pricing, and customer information for all of your buyers. A flat monthly fee and flexible plan types allow you to pause, cancel, or switch plan types from month to month at any time, even during the off-season. Farmersweb.com. All right, Zach, what's your favorite tool on the farm? It's hard for me to do favorites, Um, but,
1: you know, I mentioned that drop spreader earlier, and if I kind of think over the past season and one tool that has... uh, it really changed the nature of a job. I guess I'll, I'll go with that um, that drop spreader. And how about you, Jeff? So many tools are so important, but you know I'm going to go with one of my more recent acquisitions because of the way that it has helped decrease my anxiety significantly, and and that is my hog cart, <laughs> uh, <we laughs> have hydraulic hydraulic hog cart that our little John Deere. 530 can barely lift and we have very much on it but still trying to load hogs is just a trial often you know pig-headed uh that phrase comes from somewhere <laughs> and uh, uh having this hog cart where we can lower it all the way to the ground and they can walk on and then hydraulically we can lift it up and take them you know somewhere load them on a trailer has just made me sleep better at night on the days yeah you know, the night before we're supposed to load hogs so i'm gonna say my hog cart <laughs>
0: And Zach, I'll ask you because you're the gardener. What's your favorite crop to grow? This
1: would probably give away like kind of where I am in my gardening journey. And who knows, maybe make more experienced people shake their heads. But I just really love to grow kind of whatever I happen to be experimenting with um, that season. And I've had to, I've had to limit that. Uh, so I give myself um, eight 50-foot beds that are right next to our pizza oven. So they're kind of like a, a part of the farm where everybody can look and kind of walk around and maybe see what's interesting. Too. So that's where I try out new crops, maybe things that I've like talked um, about with chefs or just something I saw in the seed catalog. But lately also where, where that uh, sense of the experimentation has been gathering has been in the cover crops that we're using out in the garden and especially the small grains. And the fact that we're now planting some patches of small grains and harvesting them for For human consumption but with the cover crops I just really uh I just sort of love the idea of growing something that's you know it's for like a purpose that's a little bit larger than just harvesting and and selling it right you know it's kind of it's there for the microbial life and the soil and it's there to hold things in place and its effects will be felt um, long into the future and so I think I'm I'm kind of most happy when i'm putting those in the ground plus it's a great time of year to be working like when i'm putting those in in late summer and the light's low and the season is kind of starting to wind down um and uh it's just uh it's a good time to be outside
0: great and another one for you zach what's your dad's farmer superpower
1: (laughs) my dad's farmer superpower i think to um kind of look risk in the face and just be like, oh well. I like that. I get a little bit more like worried and anxious about things, but Dad's pretty good at, at managing that.
0: And and how about the vice versa on that, Jeff? What's Zach's farmer superpower?
1: Let me venture two things. Um, one, I, I think that uh, his superpower is his commitment to research and ask all the questions. Um, but secondly, I think Zach Has a um, what about how will I call a soil wisdom a a land wisdom? I think he just just feels things in his bones and uh, um, the way he treats the soil, uh, what he sees there that maybe other people don't see. That's a that's a superpower for sure.
0: Jeff, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be?
1: Well, I think it would have made. some of this make more sense and been easier. If I had, uh, uh, I, I, in 2003, I did a, uh, farm business planning course through our county extension called killing the soil of opportunity. <laughs> and I, um, I put together, I almost got put together a business plan. I got close. Um, but then life happened and it never quite got completed. And I think If I could go back and tell myself something, I would say, finish the business plan and update it annually, you know, make the plan and work the plan and adapt the plan. Um, That seems to me, that would be a a wonderful thing to um, have enforced early on.
0: How about you, Zach, if you could go back in time and and tell yourself one thing when you were just really getting into the business, what would it be? Um,
1: I think I'd actually tell myself um, to cook more. Uh, <laughs> it's something that I certainly get a lot of joy from now. um I spent a lot of time uh, learning how to bake early on, but uh, if I had to cook, it'd be from recipes. I didn't really develop just the techniques to kind of take anything and put a, a meal together. But um as as I've done that, you know, I've, I just have a better sense of the food that we're producing. I get a better sense of like what kind of products to offer to our CSA members and to the chefs, and it just sort of like it deepens my relationship with the food when I can, you know, start it as a seed and grow it in the garden, but then also take it in the kitchen and, and prepare it. Um, so yeah, I think I'd say cook more. It also actually provides a good sense of like boundary during the work day. Um, I do a lot of the cooking at home and so like if I am responsible for getting a meal on the table. I, I know I need to <laughs> wrap it up in the garden and, and get out of there.
0: Jeff and Zach, thank you so much for being on the farmer to farmer podcast today.
1: Well, thank you, Chris. This was, this was fun. Yeah, and it's uh, it's a real honor um to be able to chat with you. We're um yeah, we're big fans of the podcast and just uh, all it's doing and uh how it's giving um people across the country kind of a starting point for talking and also how it's telling the the story of uh, some of the things that are happening in agriculture right now. So thanks Chris for the work you're doing. I echo that.
0: Thank you. All right, so wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 119 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast, and you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Hawkins, that's H-A-W-K-I-N-S. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America, and by Rock Dust Local. The first company in North America specializing in local sourcing and delivery of the best rock dust and biochar for organic farming. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, if you enjoy the show, please head on over to iTunes and give us, leave us a review or talk to us in the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource that you value. You can support the show directly by going to com slash donate. I'm working on making the best farming podcast in the world, and you can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmtofarmerpodcast.com. I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.